first, we're going to go to Washington, D.C., and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist for the New York Times, David Farenthold, who made his name keeping track of Donald Trump's uh, charitable works on that uh, uh, legal pad. So uh, I'm sure you've followed the latest legal judgments. Uh, the civil yeah. lawsuit in New York, he has been fined a $450 million dollars. Uh, and is using that to basically reinforce his claim that the justice system in this country is completely corrupted. Does that have uh, any legs? Well, I don't think it has any sort of it's not factual, right? The, the things that happened to him in New York happened after a long trial in which the judge considered all kinds of opinions. Trump got to testify. You know, there was a there was a lengthy legal process behind this. And now he gets to appeal. It's not Russia. You know, as, mm-hmm. as Chevy Chase said in Caddyshack, this isn't Russia. Is this Russia? It's not Russia. Um, he gets to appeal um, and, and he gets to, gets to contest that trial. Um, so, no. You know, does it have legs politically? Possibly. Uh, you know, I don't know. The more that these cases come out and people see the evidence that's behind the, the, the punishments Trump is facing, maybe voters will uh, will start to see him differently. Maybe not. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just curious what your, your, your take or your feel for this. Does it begin to look like piling on at some point? Unfair to Trump. I don't know. I mean, it's so hard for me to know from within the bubble of Washington. You know, what does it look like to somebody in Washington state who doesn't follow politics as closely as I do? Um, I don't know. Every one of these cases is going to be coming up. And I think there'll be at least two more criminal cases that will go to trial before the election are, are going to be different based on different facts. And if you pay attention, you'll learn more about what Trump did um, or allegedly did. Um, but I don't know if you're if you're if you're at enough of a distance, you think, oh, 91 counts. How could you know? Either that will make you say, wow, maybe there's something wrong with this guy that he's facing 91 felony counts. Or maybe you'll say, oh, well, you know, this must be the system is out to get him. Yeah. Now, what does he have to put up now? Even though he's appealing, he has to put up some kind of bond, right? Right. He has to the, the, a full amount of the judgment. I think is three hundred and seventy million dollars without interest. I think he has to put up a bond within 30 days. So basically, he has to sock that money away uh, somehow. I mean, it doesn't mean he has to give it to the state because he could, he could get it back on appeal. But he has to show that he has it and has put it away in case he does lose on appeal and has to give it to the state. Now, is that a complicated process? Because the implication from what, uh, what small parts of the testimony I heard was that uh, he claimed he's just flush with cash. What we've seen, the disclosures he's given, he, he supposedly has about $600 million in ready cash. Uh, obviously, there's a lot more beyond that in real estate assets and stocks and other things, but $600 million in ready cash. So if you add this $450 million with interest, plus the $83 million that Eugene Carroll won from him in the defamation suit a few weeks ago, that's a big chunk of his available cash. It, it doesn't mean he's going to be broke. It doesn't, you know, he's still got a lot of other assets that he could sell, um, but it's certainly a huge bite out of the liquid assets he has. Okay, so this does not make him destitute in any way, and he can he can easily continue his campaign, correct? No, and, and he, he certainly will continue his campaign. And I think you know he's trying to install his daughter-in-law in the RNC. I think the merging of the political with the per, the, the business will continue. You know, the mm-hmm. Trump organization as a business has kind of been forgotten by him. He doesn't spend any time on it anyway. What he's doing is merging the Republican National Committee and the Trump organization, or, or his, you know, his own pocketbook. So I don't think that he's going to go broke anytime soon if, he, if he's able to tap into that sort of monetary stream. Yeah. You say he's trying to install his daughter? I thought that was a done deal already. 
Well, legally, it's not a done deal. Uh, he has said he wants co-chairs of the RNC. One is the North Carolina Republican Party chair who is supportive of his lies about the election in 2020. The other is his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump. The, those are his choices, which probably means they're going to be the choices, but they haven't been actually formally elected yet. Yeah. I've heard some people asking, so what are what does the law say about once he has control of the RNC, how that money can be used? Can he use it for anything? Can he use it for legal fees? Yes. I mean, the RNC is already paying his legal fees, so certainly they could. They, they they could continue paying his legal fees on the grounds that that is a political expenditure that helps their candidate, you know, fight off the Democrats or whatever. Um, and so there's, they're, they certainly can use it to pay the legal fees, and I'm sure they will if his daughter-in-law is in charge. And the uh, do you have any feel for how the sneaker business is going to go for him? <laughs> So you're referring to this thing where he all of a sudden came out and started selling $400 gold sneakers? Yes. I, You know, this reminds me of Trump's stakes in a way, and that I'm sure, you know, before he went into politics, he had all these different things, these like weird one-off products, Trump vodka, Trump steaks, Trump cologne, that somebody else took all the risk and he just lent them his name. And so if it sold, he made money. If it didn't sell, it was the other guy's problem. I'm sure that's what this is. You know, I don't think Donald Trump is really has a warehouse full of shoes that he's paid for and now needs to sell. I don't think they will sell, but if they don't, it's not really, and it doesn't mean anything to him. <laughs> but I mean, he must have been thinking, you don't just suddenly come up with a new sneaker. There's got to be, uh, you know, a concept <laughs> team and, and designs and, and marketing. He, he had this in his back pocket the whole time, didn't he? Yeah, he was out there testing different foams in the, in the sole to see that's how, they, what I'm you know, how springy the they next were. Next film yeah, night. I, I yeah. All right, so. Um, <laughs> What's how long is the appeal process for this particular case going to take? Do you think? I, it, I think it will take at least months, maybe more than a year. Oh. Uh, I mean, this can go to the New York State Supreme Court. He's going to do as he usually does and throw a million different arguments up there and see what sticks. Um, the, the people that I talk to say that they think this case is pretty solid and will and will survive on appeal. But it's, you know, there aren't that many cases like this, so it's hard to be sure. Yeah. Okay. Now the Fonnie Willis case in uh, Georgia, the Georgia election interference case. I watched uh, some of her testimony and her boyfriend's testimony and her father's testimony. I mean, everybody came ever came out saying that there's nothing wrong here that compromises the case. It's awkward. It may be somewhat uh, embarrassing, but she is an upright, uh, honest person. What do you think the outcome of this is going to be? Well, so now it's in the hands of a judge. It does seem like the judge won't won't throw her off the case. I mean, it is extremely awkward and, you know, not a great thing to do if you're the boss of an entire department like she is to date one of your employees. But uh, it doesn't seem like it, they've proven that she, you know, prosecuted this. Like the allegations the Trump team had been, she only prosecuted this case and made it so big and so long because she really just wanted to spend more time with her boyfriend and wanted more money, you know, to be paid to him so she could go on vacation with him. I don't think anybody's found allegations of that, but the case itself results from this relationship. Um, so I do think that she will be allowed to continue. That said, it's only added more delay to this this case that's already very complicated and long delayed. Indeed. David Farenthold from the New York Times. David, thank you. Thank you. Choke points. Let's go. It has added 15 to 20 minutes to the drives of eastbound I-90 commuters. So why is it taking so long to fix that expansion joint on the freeway 
uh, just east of Mercer Island. Here's Chris. Eastbound I-90 has been reduced to three lanes on the east end of Mercer Island for about a month now. There is a failing expansion joint on the section of road as I-90 crosses the East Channel Bridge. The state decided to close the lane last month to keep vehicles off it because engineers worried it would fail under loads. The plan was to restripe a fourth lane back into the freeway sometime this month. All the lanes would be reduced to 10 feet in width, and then the expansion joint would be fixed and replaced next year. I get a lot of comments about this, considering that drivers are seeing up to 20-minute delays during rush hour. John Donaldson reached out to me last week asking what a lot of people are like. Why is this taking so long, and why is it going to take a year to fix it? He wrote this hiccup is costing him those 15 to 20 minutes a day. So I went a little deeper with the DOT on this, and here's the response. WashDOT is actually having trouble finding a contractor to do the restriping because there aren't many that do this particular type of work, especially at this time of year here in this part of the country. So once they get that contract signed, that restriping will be done as fast as possible. Now, as for why it will take another year to replace the failing joint, WashDOT says the project is still in design phase. It has been declared an emergency, and the project's actually been moved up on the schedule as far as it can be. The joint was originally scheduled to be replaced in 2027. It is now on the fast track to be done in 2025. But the new joints need to be custom made, and they will take four to six months to build. So 2025 is the earliest that WashDOT can pull this off. So, in the interests of going above and beyond, or just doing my job, I love going to places where not a lot of people do. I went under the East Channel Bridge yesterday to check it out. Uh, you can hear some of the expansion joint noise, noise, but I couldn't tell which of the which one was the failing one. Uh, there are several types of joints under the bridge. It's kind of interesting. They're they're different types in different spots, including an odd set that looks to be supporting the East Mercer Way on-ramp there to eastbound I-90. You didn't touch that one, did you? No, I, okay, I couldn't good. quite jump that high. I was close. I almost got it. Uh, so you could check out a picture at MyNorthwest.com. I also have some video up there as well. I'll be working with WashDOT closely to let you know as soon as they get that contract signed and they can get that restriping done, because that will re- release some of that traffic. Though the lanes, as I said, are only going to be 10 feet wide, uh, I'm expecting this to kind of, the delays to stick with us even when they get that fourth lane returned. Well, that is- explains why the striping is so poor in this area. There are no companies who can do it. That's crazy. Yeah, they, yeah, they're having trouble finding you know people that are available at this time to, to do it. So they're still working on that. Uh, and that was as of, what, early, late Friday. So uh, Somebody please start a striping company, <laughs> will you? Yeah. Just anybody who can paint. Right now, let's tackle the issue of teenage crime. We saw that case in Michigan where a mom was convicted for providing the gun to her teenage son, which he then used to open fire at his school. The dad's also facing trial. And I immediately thought of the 12 and 13-year-olds who are appearing in court today for leading police on that chase through Wallingford in a car that they stole at gunpoint. That gun had to come from somewhere. And so I asked Casey McNerthy from the King County Prosecutor's Office whether the parents of those teens could be held responsible for the crimes the same way the parents in Michigan were. And according to Casey, you could try, but it's not easy. Part of what makes that Michigan case so unique is that it, it, it was the exception and not the norm. There were a different set of facts in that Michigan case where you had the mom who bought the gun and several other steps that, that, that led to that involuntary manslaughter conviction. The short way to say it here is in that in that case involving the 12 and 13 year old, Seattle police are asking the same question that the public is asking of, of hey, where did this gun come from? You know, who's responsible here? And so those questions are not being ignored. The hard part here is there's there's two different standards in, in Washington. There's the Facebook standard, which is what we all talk about of, of, hey, if you're 
12-year-olds running around with a gun and, and shooting it and stealing cars, you should be held responsible. Yeah. The law is, is very different. In short, what the law says is, even if you have a kid making terrible choices, that's not necessarily enough to hold a parent criminally liable. You've got to show that they're somehow involved in it, either as an accomplice or clearly responsible for it, which is a pretty different standard than what I think you or I would have, you know, saying like, come on, you got to figure this out. True. So in the Michigan case, the mom had actually purchased a gun for the kid. Yeah. Right. And had ignored warnings about his uh, mental health. Right. Exactly. Those were, were pretty key factors. And then I also heard left an appointment early the day of the, of the shooting with the school and uh, didn't take him out. It was all, all kinds of issues there. Uh, and we're not seeing that in the, the case with the 12 and 13 year old in, in Seattle. Uh, Seattle police haven't referred that to us yet, but I, I'm sure with this case or other cases, if they have the evidence to prove a crime against any parent, they would send it to us, too. Okay, but 12 and 13, isn't the parent's responsibility to know where a 12 and 13-year-old is Oh yeah, at all times? I, I mean, I, I think so, yeah. And, and that's just the way that you and I are talking about it. That shows the difference between the parental standard and the legal standard, which is mm-hmm. really hard for people who are good parents to, to differentiate. Like, shouldn't that be the same as the law? And it's not always. And in, in, in the case of these two kids, unless they stole the gun from someone who didn't know it had been stolen— it had to be handed to them by somebody else who was therefore culpable for giving a firearm to someone who is not legally entitled to have it, right? You'd think so, yeah. And that's a question of where did the gun come from and what led up to the circumstances of them getting it. Of, you know, was it stolen when they were out somewhere? Did they have it when they left the house? You know, there are a lot of questions. But really, truly, the police are asking those questions. And, and so if they can find answers to it, right now we've charged them with multiple crimes, the, the 12-year-old and the 13-year-old. It's not something that's going through diversion and won't be. Yeah. But, you know, they have pleaded not guilty, are expected to go forward with this case. And we'll see what we get from police on it. Yeah. And I would say they should get off the hook because an adult enabled them. No, I'd say, you know, keep them on the hook. But there's got to be a, a shot across the bow here, if I might use that metaphor, to, uh, to people who are, who are just careless with weapons and make them accessible. So it seems to me, unless they stole it from somebody who didn't know it was gone so that they could inform the police, you're supposed to inform the police your gun is stolen, right? Uh, if it was left out, if the ammunition was uh, left out, and if, God forbid, somebody actually deliberately bought it for them and handed it to them, Shouldn't that person share in whatever penalty that uh, that they get? I think there's a lot of people who would agree with that and who would say yes. And then the question becomes, okay, well, then if it's so difficult to prove this under Washington law, how does it be addressed effectively? And that's really a question for state lawmakers. They are the ones who can say, okay, we're going to either write a new law or, or modify what we have existing to make it clear that the, that responsibility is more explicit. Casey McNurthy from the King County Prosecutor's Office. Thank you, Casey. Thanks a lot, Dave. And Colleen, I heard in our story this morning that the mom actually did call police when the kids left the house. Yeah, and told police that she believed her son or both sons had a gun, and that was just eight minutes before the crime of the carjacking was called in. So we just got these court documents considering they are going to be in court today. Lots of details coming out, and Sam will join us for the 7 o'clock newscast with that. That's the right thing to do, right? I mean, what more can you do if the kids are running out with a gun? Yeah. We all know that there is a lack of affordable, high-quality child care in Washington State. So, Kyra News Radio's Heather Boss decided to find out why and how family, businesses, and the government are responding. Here is her investigation. 
Hey guys, how's it going? We're having fun? Under the watchful eyes of a childcare worker. Yeah, what are we playing today? Oh. Kids are at play. I do like playing tetherball. Do you like hanging out here after school? Yeah. For dozens of children at this after-school Kids Co. program in Seattle, it's fun. For their parents, it's relief. Having good people to help watch, I mean, it's people that you're trusting with the most important thing in your life. And for many of these families, it's a necessity. Without this child care, I couldn't do my job, either me or my husband. So we we need it. It's needed. But good quality child care can be frustratingly difficult to find. Just not being able to get into care. Wait lists are really long, so there's just a real scarcity. Kids Go founder and CEO Susan Brown. The data that we've looked at basically shows statewide there's only about 25% of the need for care is met. In fact, in some parts of Washington, the lack of availability is so large, we call them child care deserts. That's Cheryl Smith with the State Commerce Department, who oversees the Child Care Collaborative Task Force set up by the state legislature in 2018. It found that one of the major contributors to a lack of child care is it's not a very lucrative business to get into. Child care providers are not paid very well. Which Brown confirms. What is the average pay for a child care worker? Okay, in Washington State, I think it's about 15 to $17 an hour, I think. That might be high, but in, in Seattle, it's around $20 or more per hour. And that's not super high either. That's almost minimum wage now in many of our yeah. local cities. Yeah. We're, I mean, most child care centers that I connect with actually pay more than minimum wage, but those costs are passed on to families. Have you had that situation where a child care worker said, look, I can't afford to do this anymore? Yes. Yeah, that's that's why turnover in child care is so high. Jessica Hevener would like to see her child care provider paid more. And then when you find one, you don't want to lose them. You know, you want to retain them. You build a connection. You want your children to still see that same person. So you want to know they're getting quality pay and time off as well. Because if they're not taking care of, how can they take care of my kids? But asking parents like Hevener to pay more out of pocket would be a heavy lift. In Washington state, the average monthly price of full-time child care is more than $1,000 per child. Much of that is due to inflation. Providers are paying more for everything from rent and utilities to snacks and supplies. As a low-income wage earner, Hevener says she's fortunate to qualify for state assistance for child care. Because it was about $3,000 a month for my three children at that age and then you add in my mortgage, I wasn't bringing enough home to do that. How much would you say on average that you bring home? Um, monthly, anywhere between two to $3,000 right now. So that would almost alone be your child care. Correct. Washington State subsidizes child care for families making less than 60% of the state median income. So a family making less than about $54,000 a year would qualify. That leaves middle class families scrambling to cover child care costs on their own or looking at other options. Ray Alva says she and her husband worked different shifts after their first child was born. He would work the night shift and I would work the morning and we would cross over for an hour and that was it. <laughs> That's when we would see each other and then our one day off a week. And it's 
very, very difficult to maintain a partnership and relationship and functional parenting style when you don't see your partner. Her fortune changed. You want to taste any ice cream too? When she began working at Molly Moon's Homemade Ice Cream. Molly Moon Neitzel is CEO and founder of the Seattle area ice cream parlors. She says she realized a lack of childcare was keeping potential employees out of the workforce. So we provide a childcare benefit at Molly Moon's to every employee who has a child under kindergarten age. That is $1,000 a month extra on top of your paycheck to go toward child care. The company also offers $350 a month for families with children six years and older. The child care benefit is so significant. I'm six months pregnant right now, so I'm very excited. Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Alva and her husband decided to complete their family. One of the biggest reasons why I felt like we were able to make this next step is because of the child care benefit that Molly is offering us. Amy Anderson is with the Association of Washington businesses. She's also on the child care task force and traveled across the state to meet with communities. She says child care is becoming a bigger concern for employers. As we have a, a lack of workforce, a big reason for that is because we do have families who aren't able to go back to work or go to school to training programs because they cannot access child care. But Anderson says she also found there's no one solution. We have different economies. We may need non-traditional work hour care so, for example, uh, swing shifts or weekends, if you're in an area where there's a high agriculture workforce and a need for that, that means just certain parts of the year you're going to have a higher demand for child care than you are in others. And Neitzel admits that although covering child care costs has made her workers more reliable and loyal. Yeah, it's really hard and not every business can afford to prioritize a child care stipend for their workers. And honestly, we shouldn't have to in the private sector. I asked Neitzel why she was so insistent that the government, not businesses, should be funding child care. Because the care economy is just as important a piece of infrastructure. The government understands that it's very important to provide roads that cars can drive on to get to work. And child care is also a thing that makes it so that workers can get to work. Neitzel mentioned countries like Finland and Denmark, where governments shoulder a significant portion of child care costs. In the U.S., federal child care funding during the pandemic has expired and Congress has not stepped up to replace it. U.S. Senator Patty Murray. We are going to lose jobs. We're going to lose workers and our economy is going to continue to lose billions more in lost wages and revenue and growth. While there's no plan right now for Washington state to fully pay for child care, lawmakers are looking to expand subsidies. Dr. Stephen Blanford, executive director of the Child Care Alliance Advocacy Group, says the new state capital gains tax will help. It was passed in 2021 as part of the Fair Start for Kids package that is driving about a billion dollars into the child care sector here in Washington state. That funding also goes into K through 12 schools and Blanford calls the money more of a down payment than a fix. And there's already an initiative heading to the November ballot seeking to repeal it. But after years of studies, Smith's task force concluded the child care system as it stands is not sustainable, that providers and their workers need help from the state. Our recommendation is for publicly funded wage supplements 
and benefits to child care workers because of the public good. Okay, so is it a jobs program or, or is it for providing child care? Paul Guppy is vice president of the Washington Policy Center, a conservative think tank. Our focus is on the family, that parents can find the services that they need in whatever flexible form that that's available. It's not so much about the government providing someone with a good job. Guppy believes the price for child care can be lowered and the incentive in pay to provide that care increased in a couple of ways. First, by reducing red tape. Brown brought that up when we spoke. The requirements to work in the child care field from a licensing standpoint are astronomical compared to what the compensation might be. Many regulations make sense, like limiting the number of children each adult is watching. And I'm not suggesting that all of them aren't necessary or that some of them aren't. But I counted no less than a hundred categories of state rules and regulations for child care providers, five pages of fine print alone on staff requirements. If streamlining the rules kept more child care centers in business, tax breaks might make them more affordable. If you offered a tax reduction for providing daycare services, that's the best way to lower the cost. So a tax reduction to a child care center or a tax reduction to a parent who has to pay for child care? Exactly. So either one. For the record, his group opposes raising taxes to fund child care, including the capital gains tax. After five years of studying whether child care should be supported through government subsidies, tax breaks, employer benefits or parent pocketbooks, Smith found it's a more complex story than what you've been told. Yet Brown says the benefits are clear. The opportunities for social and emotional development in a, in a child care setting, birth all the way through fifth grade, is, I mean, you, you can't put a price on that. We need it, we depend on it, and kids deserve it. Heather Bosch, Cairo News Radio. And Heather joins us live. So it sounds to me we, America is facing a demographic problem. We haven't got enough kids to uh, keep our average age, you know, low enough to support the economy. And it sounds like from what you talked about, one of the decisions that goes into uh, deciding whether mom's going to have kids is the availability of child care. Absolutely. Absolutely. hundred percent. That's a factor in the uh, that people I talked to, Alva, clearly weighed that whether or not they would have more than one child. So it is a factor. It, it, it affects a bigger picture. And I think sometimes in the U.S. we get stuck. We don't want to look at that bigger picture. And you notice my story was was kind of long here. This is a complicated issue. But if we dodge it, if we don't address it and we just think, well, parents will scramble, they'll make do. You know, the flip side of it is, like Senator Murray said, we're not going to have a workforce that has been that's one of the things that has made the U.S. so fabulous is we have people who get out there and work and innovate and do things. We're going to lose that. Kindness Heather Bosch. Thank you, Heather. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. One act of kindness connected to strangers at an Atlanta airport. Here's CBS's David Begnaud. Jamie Tutko is about to meet the man who went out of his way to help Jamie's mom. About a month ago, Cindy Tutko was flying through the Atlanta airport heading home to Florida. She had just left Baton Rouge, Louisiana after visiting Jamie and his family. She arrived to Terminal C at the world's busiest airport in Atlanta and needed to get to Terminal F for her next flight. But the trains were down. So with a torn ACL and a knee in need of replacement, she started walking. She had actually fallen that day and she like put herself into tears with how how much pain her knee was in. So when I was taking her to the airport, like I could tell she was hurting. 
I had a, like a big heavy satchel that I was carrying and that's what was weighing me down. And it was full and heavy, very heavy. Michael, who happens to be from Lafayette, Louisiana, spotted Cindy limping along. Initially, Cindy said when you offered to help her, it was almost a little too forward, you know, like she was like, oh, no, no, I'm good. Within seconds, really, I just I realized he was genuinely being nice. For 55 minutes, Michael carried Cindy's bag and walked right alongside her through terminal C, D, E, all the way to F. Right before we got to the gate, he grabs my hand, he looks at me and he goes, you're my mom. And I'm like, okay. And we walk up to the gate and he tells the guys at the gate, he says, um, this is my mother and she's got some issues with her knee. And is there any way that she can get on the plane before everybody else? Cause she walks very slowly. And the guy was like, sure, no problem. Your mom gave me a hug and gave me a little kiss on the cheek and uh, said, your mom would be proud of it. That's all I needed, man. Cindy texted Jamie to tell him all about that nice guy, Michael from Lafayette. Jamie immediately turned to social media, asking for help finding him. It took just a little over a day. His fiance messaged me on Twitter. She said, hey, I think that the Michael that you're looking for is my Michael. And I said, oh, really? Like, why do you think that? My Michael. And then she said, is, is your mom, does your mom, did she have knee surgery or is she about to have knee surgery? And I said, boom, that's it. You know, Michael didn't know this, but the lady he helped is a helper herself. You see, Cindy serves the deaf community as a sign language interpreter. My parents were both deaf. Sign language was my first language, and I have been dealing with the deaf ever since. My friends, the language of kindness is universal. And take it from this Cajun, it is the Louisiana way. It is 749. Here he is from the Gian Ursula Show, which starts at 9. Gee, Scott, where you been? Sorry, Canada. Canada. <laughs> Vancouver, B.C. Ooh, nice. Celebrating his beautiful uh, wife. Right. And it was a surprise birthday for her. She, We had a good time up there. I just want to give a shout out and show some love to Vancouver, B.C. It was just beautiful there. The people are beautiful. They're nice. Uh, customer service was great. And then, you know, I didn't I don't think I heard a horn honk until mm. I got back to the States. I think your boy was in Blaine and our all students are man. <laughs> so so it, it is it is good to be back. We took our uh, anniversary vacation to eastern Canada. And oh yeah. Also had a wonderful experience. Quebec City and Toronto and the weren't, weren't they weren't they Montreal. nice? Yeah. <laughs> And and every time I go to use my credit card, yeah. I would go to pay one price for it, yeah. and then I'd see the conversion rate. I nice. said, "Oh, that U.S. dollar, that U.S. dollars, all right, right <laughs> now. Bad, huh? Come on, baby, go Federal Reserve." <laughs> all right, so uh, rent control. Uh-huh. We've been hearing uh, arguments on both sides of the issue. Do yeah. you uh, hold increases to seven percent or less? What do you do? And landlords saying, if you do that, you're going to see uh, you're going to see landlords just getting out of the market. And yeah, have less housing. Yeah, me, you're not going mean, to look. If you are going to sell your house, if this happens with this 7% uh, cap, you are going to sell your house anyways. And what I mean by that is, is so 
It doesn't hold you to that. What it holds you to is is if someone's living in your place and you're charging them X amount of money for rent, in the next year, you can only increase it to 7%. Once they move out, right, then you can charge whatever you want. So you can make up for the cap, uh, the, the increased cap that you don't agree with. So it's not the problem here. I sometimes, I'll be very transparent with you guys. I think talking about this, debating about this, and arguing about this, it's just the dumbest thing in the world. I'll tell you why. So starting today, Dave, Colleen, Sully, Nick, all you guys, starting today, every raise that you get from upstairs will not come in the source of money. What we'll do is, is your money will stay the same, but we will give you more food down at the little cafeteria, okay? We will give you more access to the computers. We will give you more access to the copy machines, but not the money. And the reason why I bring that up, Colleen, is because we're talking about all of this, but we're not talking about the number one important thing in the world is this, is increase of wages. Mm. Everything is increasing around us except for our wages. Let's get very specific here. Here in the Pacific Northwest, we have talked about in the last three years, a 21% hike in rent. Question for everybody that's listening. Has any of you had a 21% increase in pay? Never. Okay, thank you. I'll wait. So, <laughs> what I'm saying is, is I'm trying to really, and I'm being, I'm not even trying to be funny right now. I know, now. but you I'm, know that the rent, it's, it's the market, right? You, you only, if you raise the rent to the point that people leave, you lose money. So, they raise the rent up until the point people might leave, and then they stop. And we have a lot of people who are doing really well here, and so that's why those rents are going up. They don't have a choice. The rental market is going to keep going up because it's hard to get in the house. You have just recently I've been speaking to different organizations. I was talking to one organization and you want to know what their job is? What's their job? Housing. Mm -hmm. And guess what they're doing? Renting. How can you be in charge, be in part of housing and helping people get into housing when you yourself can't afford to live in a house or buy a house? So, Again, while this problem that they're trying to help with the rent, which is I understand, hey, we don't want landlords to be able to increase one minute your rent's $1,500 a month, the next minute your rent's $2,200 a month. You're trying to prevent that. No doubt about it. But this is also, and for new buildings, it would exempt them for 10 years from the date that they, they would be certified. And also, if the landlord lives in that building and they rent out two or more properties, uh, rooms in that place, then that building is exempt too. So there's all kinds of loopholes to get through this. You know what's not a loophole? Just pay people more money. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> The G wants a raise. What Legislature going to order <laughs> higher salaries for the Cairo employees. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sutherland. We hear a lot of negative news about the abuses of AI, but one state senator has been uh, using it to great advantage. Senator Joan Wynn, who's been helping to uh, write the state budget, represents White Center. And I saw this piece about you um, using AI to, as you put it, crush reports. So uh, expl- <laughs> explain how you use it to brief yourself on the issues. 
I think, you know, as legislators, we're asked to do a lot of different things in a variety of topics. And one of the most important things is being informed as you make decisions. And for me, the way that I've used uh, AI in this particular case has been to help me better understand very complicated topics that I may not have the expertise to uh, in order to get to a level of understanding to make thoughtful decisions. And uh, folks may not know, we get thousands of reports every single year to the legislature on a variety of topics. I'll upload that into, in this case, ChatGPT. I'll get a summary of that. I'll ask my staff to help augment some of that feedback. And then it gets me basically 80% comfortable with the topic within a couple of minutes versus two hours reading the whole thing. Yeah. So how do you fact check it? Because uh, the way these things work is they're just using statistics to predict the logical next word. And it's not always footnoted. So how do you know it's accurate? Actually, ChatGPT4 is footnoted. They do cite references as to where the information comes from. And then the reports, at least that I that I read, um, usually when I get the summary, it's not Bible. It's not just what I take uh, yeah. in terms of the, the next steps. I then go to that summary, find where it might be bringing up something that might be somewhat controversial. Most of the stuff, I think I want to take a step back, is very baseline. It's not anything complicated. It's not anything that's going to be life-changing. It's give me a summary of what this uh, document entails. So I get a baseline understanding. And then I go for some of the more nuanced, advanced concepts by utilizing the staff that I have to kind of help me augment some of that work. Okay, so using the, the, the version of ChatGPT that has the uh, foot the clickable footnotes? That's right. Yeah, ChatGPT 4. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, well, that certainly will, I'm sure, reassure a lot of people that uh, you're at least not getting the, uh, the ravings of an out-of-control AI uh, bot. But yeah. the, the other question then is, how uh, you're also talking about how to regulate these things. And um, I know that the, that people within the industry are themselves concerned about this. So what type of regulation are you considering? Yeah. So there's a number of things kind of at play right now. And the reason why AI is such a big topic at this point is because the compute power that we have is a lot greater than it used to be. So like you just mentioned, AI is basically trying to predict the next word predict the next thing that somebody might be asking for based off of the historical data that it has. There's opportunities to do good things. There's opportunities to do good, bad things. To me, this is very much like fire. You can use it for good, cook food, keep you warm. It can be bad, it can burn things down. So you wanna make sure you have thoughtful policies kind of in this space. And in this case, I think it can transform how we operate today, which is what we need to review. So I have a mechanism setting up a task force with experts in this space, with impacted people, in order for us to better understand the implications, good and bad, as it relates to some of this work. So when you say impacted people, who, what, who are we talking about? Workers who might, who, whose jobs might be replaced or something else? Folks whose jobs might be impacted, folks whose jobs might be actually better. So I'll give you an example of one way that it's being used at the state, I think, in a positive light. So within DSHS or within our social service agencies, it can oftentimes take social workers two years to get a handle on all the regulations, all the rules. They are going to build an internal chat bot using all of their uh, information. So basically, if you're a new social worker or a case manager, you can ask these, these things question, validate it as well, and be able to get the resources you need for consumers or for residents of Washington State in a minute, in minutes versus in weeks. So there's a number of ways that it can be used right now. But also, like you said, there needs to be reviews for bias. There needs to be transparency. And we should understand how the models work. 
Well, that part is great. Use it as a as a, a search tool, as a way to, as you put it, uh, digest documents. The I think the problems come when a chatbot, for example, goes online and starts issuing posts on its own for the purpose of you know disrupting a political campaign, yeah. or is used to, uh, for example, fake someone's likeness and yeah. uh, attempt to make money off that. And it seems to me the companies, it's going to be on the companies to put some kind of safeguards in place to prevent that kind of abuse, isn't it? Yeah, what's interesting is you see in a lot of the companies this past weekend voluntarily um, impose rules on themselves around deepfakes. And in fact, you're absolutely right. And Senator David Frocht a couple of years ago already passed policies around deepfakes and the usage of AI when it comes to misinformation as well. So we already have policies on the books in Washington State to address that particular uh, scenario. And then we also have the platforms themselves, you know, running the, the red flag saying that these are potential issues that they're going to be monitoring for. I even spoke with Adobe as well. Um, they wanted to use uh, basically a, an identifier to verify if something was original content or not. You saw President Biden this past weekend mentioned that we need to have some of those things associated with some of this content. So very much a big issue. And I think um, the point that you're kind of making is that there are going to be situations where there's high risk use of AI and situations where it's not really that big of a deal. If it's just being used to organize my photos so that it's easy for me to search for, not a big deal. If it's political speech, if it's making financial determinations, if it's trying to persuade somebody, then we should be able to monitor those and have regulations in place to ensure that they're being thoughtful. All right, absolutely. I mean, when you when you uh, combine uh, artificial intelligence with some kind of online service, whether it's uh, X or Facebook or something else, and it starts putting up posts, and you can, I mean, I assume you can program it to put up massive numbers of posts that make it seem like there's a, you know, a groundswell of public opinion in favor of a certain thing. That's to me, that's where we're entering the uh, the danger zone, and you're 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 using one person using this thing could disrupt uh, the the political process. I mean, it's happening right now. Right, there's a whole Netflix special around the use of data on consumers as it relates to politics. I think most. I don't know what percentage of the users on X, but there's a large percentage that are actually not real. Bots are are very much a thing too. I I see them on my own feed where you can tell when it's a fake person or not. So I think that that is certainly an issue that needs to be addressed as it relates to not just free speech, but also how it can be used to manipulate kind of a whole whole host of things. Right. So can we expect some legislation to pass this session on that or are we still looking in the future here? Well, in terms of uh, political speech, that is already being addressed in some of the policies that we are facing right now. Um, the, the policies in place already account for that behavior, and that is already prohibited. I think it's going to be incumbent upon the platform to have mechanisms in place to catch some of those things, which I think, you know, after the scrutiny that they've received in the past few years, hopefully they're, they're on that page. I think for us in Washington is, is how do we better understand what the implications can be um, for us here and making sure that it's thoughtful, it's uh, in the best interest of our residents, and that it's done in a way that is transparent. State Senator Joan Wynn of White Center. Senator, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.